Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. How are you, Dave? I'm ecstatic to be here again, Paul. <laughs> right, so this is part two of uh, our live recording of the uh, of our show in Sydney on the November the 27th. It was a really fun evening. Um, we, uh, we kicked off with... Um, part one, which you can find on the podcast feed, uh, talking about uh, asset allocation and property. Um, and then we moved into something where we got some of our experts to share some uh, some insights on on how they track data, particular data points that they uh, watch for the evening. Um, Dave, um, what are some of the things that you watch pretty closely? At the moment, I'm watching the PMI reports fairly closely. Given there's uh, a bit of nerves about the uh, global economy, these have uh, been on the money this year and been able to go and predict uh, what we're seeing with a slowdown in the uh, export markets and uh, particularly some worrying signals now that are starting to come out of uh, both uh, China and the Eurozone. Uh, apart from that, uh, more domestically, I look at uh, – Changes in house prices because I do think they're quite influential over a longer period of time on things like employment growth and consumption. So uh, you feed all that together. Obviously, it's very important to the uh, to the broader macro backdrop in Australia. So it'll um, certainly be interesting. There's a bit, you know everybody's trying to figure out when the end of this uh, massive period of expansion uh, in the U.S. economy might come to an end. Um, and then also obviously looking at like the shape of the yield curve and all these cover all these points that we cover. So that's the first panel that's coming up. But we call this uh, Indicator Insider and our guests on this panel uh, were James Whelan, who's investment manager at BFS Group, Eleanor Cray, who's a market strategist at uh, Saxo Capital Markets, Carmen Kusher, uh, who's head of research at CoreLogic, um, and then Adam Smith, the appropriately named Adam Smith, uh, who's chief operating officer at uh, Australian fintech company, listed fintech company, OFX. Uh, OFX was our sponsor for the evening, and they were great to work with. So I'll hand over to the panel. Okay. Indicators. Um, James, I am going to start with you. <clears throat> this panel is just about uh, asking about asking you guys for what the indicators are that you think, I don't want to use the phrase give you an edge, um, but the things that make you curious, the things that you see lines moving in particular directions that make you think that there's a different kind of picture coming together or yeah. that uh, things are changing. Where do you look? What often happens in, in, in markets is that it's not so much knowing about what the indicator is or, or, or what the trend actually is, it's knowing when the market decides to make that the issue, that they all of a sudden decide to care about, that it all of a sudden decides to care about, this great unknown thing. Uh, right now, this is one of them. Wait, no, it's not. Wait, play the other one. This is one of them. That's one of them, right? Yeah, that's also one of them, right? Okay. Um, don't see behind the curtain, there's nothing going on. Um, so, okay, so, so right now, this is one of them that, that we're seeing. It's on, it's on housing, and it is, we think that it is a very strong potential that the market is going to start seeing this as being, I don't say green shoots, I'm going to say red shoots for economic weakness in the US. So, so it's, it's knowing that this always sort of goes on, and look at where the average sits on this. So this is housing supply. Usually there's you know, an average of 6.2 months of supply in the, in the housing market in the US. David, I'm about to defer to you to actually talk us through the details of this, because you know I'm not a detail guy. But the, um, and, and you can see that it is, it's sharply increasing, which shows, just based on the simple premise of supply and demand, David, come in any time you like, to, to talk us through the, uh, the bits and pieces on that. In, in so being that we think that the market is about to make this a thing, because we think that the Fed might need to start looking for reasons as to not being so hawkish with regards to 
what they're doing into, into the next year. Of course, and we have seen that uh, the NHB uh, Home Builder Confidence Survey in the United States has uh, deteriorated quite sharply yep. last month. Yep. Uh, Housing stocks, Home Builder stocks as well have, have, have taken a bit of a beating um, at the moment. It shows, uh, not to cut you off, but it, it shows that potentially the market is predicting, is predicting that there is some severe weakness. There, is a, there was a stat that was thrown around um, uh, before the GFC, I will not forget it, from a Jonathan Payne, who was someone that I was reading back then, that was saying back then, 50% of jobs were in some way related to the US housing market. In the US. Jobs in the US were related to the US housing market. And, and as soon as all of that housing thing started to happen, that's how it snowballed. Now, I don't know what that number is now. I don't even know if that number was correct back then. What I know is that I think that people are going to start paying attention to this. And certainly with the housing supply increasing, if there's that many, there's that many jobs uh, uh, connected to it, you can kind of see why the unemployment rate is where it's at. Yes, and, and also, so housing, uh, with the supply with uh, mortgage, you know, mortgage rates at 30-year highs, everything else that comes to it, it, that the theory of stuff, which I always have, which is that the most important thing in any economy is for people to buy a home and fill it with stuff and fill it with a family and grow an economy. Um, if that isn't happening, then an economy sort of slows down a touch. Um, Eleanor, uh, you have something that's sort of related to, um, uh, to this too. So for us, we like to look at the credit impulse for various economies. So for us, this is really a leading indicator. So we think it's very important when you're looking at the economy and where an economy might go next. And I think it's very important as well for when you're looking at where to place profitable trades is looking at those leading indicators. So we're looking at a lot of economic indicators are lagging economic indicators. And that's pretty much like driving, looking in the rearview mirror. So you want to be looking where things are going. And for us as well, it's very important for looking at where these big turning points might be in the major global economies. So the credit impulse is particularly pertinent for, I guess, defining where those turning points might arise. So the credit impulse is the supply of new credit into an economy as a percentage of GDP. Uh, so this is one of the things that actually leads us to maybe have a more positive view on China moving into next year. So the credit impulse in China now has picked up to above the long run average, so it's sitting at around plus 3.3% of GDP at the moment. And we are expecting that to pick up further as we see stimulus pick up more so. And it's also leading us to have a more negative view on the UK at the moment, as we see that the credit impulse in the UK has actually contracted to around negative 5% of GDP. And that is one of the biggest contractions that we've ever seen in the UK credit impulse. So this, I guess, combined with the fact that real wage growth in the UK has been uh, below the real wage growth that we've seen in Italy since 2008. I guess that pretty much secures a home run for Prime Minister Corbyn heading into the uh, elections or whatever we see coming out of Brexit. I've got a very silly question. What's an impulse? <laughs> so the credit impulse is the supply of new credit into the economy as a percentage of GDP. So I guess it's a pretty, um, it's just a name for the indicator. Um, Adam, uh, I think it's interesting that um, one, like you guys obviously look over vast oh. amounts of transaction data. Um, what do you look at in, in particular and what trends do you, do you see? Because obviously I think you know, you'd be looking at some of the dashboards you would have would tell you a lot about, um, about demand, about um, uh, capital flows, etc. It does. Um, so we have a slightly different perspective on indicators. Obviously at OFX we're a foreign exchange and international payments provider. We're not economists. We're not 
asset managers. So the indicators that we look at um, are only as good as they are able to help us manage the business better or get better outcomes for the customers. So, you know, we, we look at anything that has a potential impact on, on foreign exchange prices. So, you know, CVIX through to Baltic Dry, through to iron ore, through to, you know, Aussie sort of wage growth or, or lack thereof. But what's really interesting for us is the way that we can then apply that to our own, as you say, proprietary data, which I think we've built up about 20 years now of, of, uh, of transaction data and, and how we actually use that intersection of the two data sets to actually look at what that means from a customer perspective, what the transaction flows can look like so we can start to be a little bit predictive in the modelling and understand what the flows might look like and in what direction they'll come. So have you built new products, uh, that kind of thing, out of like just testing um, things from the, the, the data indicating that maybe there's a demand for this type of... Uh... Yeah, new products, services. I mean, it's, um, you know, new features to our service offering, absolutely. Um, it's about, you know, making sure that the, that the customer sort of gets what they want out of our service. Um, and so if we can use data, both external and internal, and, and get a better understanding as to what they're potentially going to be looking for and get in front of the curve, then that's obviously a good outcome for them and us. Uh, Cameron, your favourite leading indicators, what do you think? Oh, look, I, there's obviously for the housing market so much that you get uh, from the ABS and from the Reserve Bank. I guess I like to look at some of the proprietary ones we have. So um, I think listings, uh, as I've talked about quite a bit, that's a, a really good leading indicator because it tells you the story of, of what's happening in the market, the level of confidence out there uh, from potential sellers in the market and just also how long properties are, are taking to sell. And I really like getting into some of the more granular data. Like, uh, you know, we, we see the trends in Sydney, we see the trends in, in Melbourne, but, you know, at the moment we can see that when we delve down a little bit uh, deeper, there's certain markets that we're still seeing growth. So in Sydney, for example, Central Coast is still growing, whereas the rest of the city is uh, falling. In Melbourne, it's the really expensive areas of the city, the inner suburbs where we're seeing the weakness. So, uh, and then the outer, more affordable areas are still doing quite well. So I like the, uh, the proprietary data and, and the really granular stuff that tells you more of the story about what's actually going on in the city rather than just keeping it at that macro level. Can I ask you something? Anytime you dip a toe into the white waters of... Uh, uh, as I might describe them, Australian property Twitter, right? So you, you go in there and it's just <laughs> chaos, you know, um, yeah. you know, getting pulled in all sorts of different directions. Um, one, of the, one of the themes that's been coming through a lot uh, uh, lately has been um, the rising level of unreported uh, uh, um, uh, sales or transactions yep. or... Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think the problem in the Australian housing market is that real estate agents don't need to report this data. Uh, it, you do eventually receive it from the valuer general, but one of the reasons why we go and try and get this information from the market is because in some states it can take up to four or five months to actually get that through from the valuer general. Uh, in terms of auction clearance rates, though, certainly at the moment we're finding that uh, as the market weakens, people are less prepared to, to tell us if that auction was successful or not. Historically, uh, our collection rates have been about 90% of the market and they're slipping down into the mid to, to low 80%. And I think obviously that's an indicator of uh, the weakness in the market and people aren't quite as prepared uh, to divulge that information to you in a timely manner. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and that's Doris, a challenge. We can't let the, uh, the neighbours know what we imagine, sold the house for you. Imagine, imagine if at the end of the day I wanted to pick and choose which stocks I had in the index so that I could report how the index went that day. The XJO uh, would have been down 
two and a half percent, but I removed all of the resource sector. We're only down 0.7 percent. <laughs> is this where, is, 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 is that a, is that a fair I comparison? Think that is a reasonable comparison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that the the real estate market generally is is nowhere near as transaction uh, nowhere near as transparent as the equities market, and that's ultimately the challenge. Uh, but even just broadly speaking, in terms of property data, you know, there's no standard across the country. So the data we get in Adelaide is very different to the data we get in Queensland, which is very different to the, the data that we get in Western Australia. And ultimately, that's, uh, that's the big challenge for the housing market. There's no one standard format that all this information comes in at. For a $7 trillion housing market, that's probably something that we should be working on as a country. 100%. I think it's a bad thing, though. You can't mark to market your house at the end of every day. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's the biggest asset. Down in our local bowling club, highest, I think people are... Uh, highest leverage. <laughs> you can see what your BHP share is worth, but you don't know what your house is worth. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, one quick question for you. Um, it's, around, it's around data. It's around um, big data. Can you um, tell us... So you All of this... And this is a, a challenge for every company, right? So be, be it in financial services, publishing, retail, uh, the construction industry, right? Um, the amount of data that's out there uh, from everything is vast and increasing, right? So um, how do you think about structuring your approach to tapping, capturing, and analyzing the data? Yeah, you have to be very careful, clearly. Um, you know, these days, uh, privacy is, is, is a big issue around data, personal data, the use thereof, sale of, um, how do you promote your services? So you really need to use, uh, you look through it in a sort of regulatory legal lens first up and work out what you can and can't do. Um, and then from there, it's about just maximising the value. As you said before, we see a lot of transaction flow over the course. We're probably doing a million transactions every year. So that's, you know, that's a lot of data to sift through. Um, and where we can, we use it to our advantage, but as I said, only within the sort of framework that's allowable at the moment. El, can I ask you, what's the first thing you go to in the morning when you're starting your day? Like, what are, where is, like, do you look to sort of orient yourself on, is everything okay? So, I think for me, the first thing I look at in the morning is where the market's closed overnight, uh, where the two years are, where the 10 years are, where we're looking at with the yield curve. I think that's really the indicator that I'd probably take to a, to a desert island with me. If I had to choose one <laughs> for financial markets, it would be the yield curve. Uh, and it's come in this week, hasn't it? Um, I think it's come in to, to 23 basis points. Yeah, 23 yeah. basis points, yeah. Yeah, so we're seeing a significant flattening. And I think as we see, I guess, the Fed going into this December rate hike, we think that one will go ahead and we think they'll turn significantly dovish from then. So we're looking at a further flattening of the yield curve, yes. Do you think a, a yield curve is a predictor of a recession? I think it's difficult because I think, version, sorry. <laughs> I think statistically we don't have enough data points, I guess, uh, to say that there's a correlation causation there. I mean, that's what the mathematician in me would say. But I think it's when you look at the yield curve and how it has been a significant predictor of, I guess, every recession that we've previously had, yes, you do have to sit up and take note of it. Um, James, how have you thought about um, all of that, that area, um, fixed income, um, the, you know, the safe haven trades and... Um, there's, there's two things. I don't think that there's ever been a, a, a time in history when so many regular retail people, mums and dads, mum and dad investors, super fund investors, have known so much about the yield curve than they do right now. <laughs> and that is a real credit to, to everything. It's a credit to the commentary. It's a credit to everything that, that, that has been going on. That for, for, 
for now, when it, it is a time when people usually just go, bond yields, I don't really care about bond yields. How are my hybrids doing? How am I, uh, my bits and pieces? Okay, I don't care about the 10 years. And now people are actually paying attention to, okay, what, what, are, the, what are the two tens doing? Or, you know, you've got, you know, uh, the amazing Chris Weston on TV who's telling people what the, you know, what's his preferred way of looking at it. And people actually know what, uh, what all this means now. That, that, that you know, what, what, what these yield movements actually mean to their portfolio and how it actually affects them. Whereas before, I, I can tell you that that was not that was not really the case. Do you think there's an element now that uh, because the the inversion of the yield curve has now been so widely publicised that potentially as a as a leading indicator for a recession that it could actually lead to people starting to go and say, well, okay, we know that it's gone inverse. Uh, now we've got 18 months until the next recession, and they actually go hide. Positioning for that, do you think there's a risk of that potentially? There's there, there's two things. First off, as I've said before, and to reiterate, once something becomes a known. And once something becomes talked about, it stops being a thing or it stops being an immediate thing. The other side of things is that, is that once the yield curve inverts, you've got 18 months of potential rally, that, that if there is a rally that's going on. And this is what happened before, that the people did the stats on the number of times when there had been an inversion of the yield curve and what happened after that. So we were in a rally last time everyone started talking about this thing, which was about March, sort of something like that, or, or about that time. That okay, well, it doesn't matter what's going on because we've still got time. And that markets always look across the valley. So just, you know, maybe I've been talking to Con, you know, uh, a little bit too much and he gets you all bullish in the head about everything that's going on. Everything's <laughs> going to be okay. Um, but, you know, markets do have a tendency to look through these sorts of things, especially if you already know that that's a factor. It's what you don't know about. That's, that's what you've got to worry about. So when you least expect it, expect it. And what you don't know about, watch out for it. That's about as good as it gets there. We do need to wrap it up, but... I was just going to give a very quick shout out to, uh, I know at the moment I get a sense that a lot of people are starting to get concerned about the global economy. There's a lot of things talking about late cycle and, and, and what that potentially means. So if you want to see what uh, Debata released now, which is actually starting to go and move markets much more than what it was in the past, PMI reports, yep. they've been cited. We saw a very, very, uh, you know, quite a pessimistic uh, reading come out of Europe uh, last week, uh, indicating that you know, the momentum in that e uh, economy is slowing. So. Uh, for me personally, if there's going to be something that you want to look at in terms of you know, the optimism towards the global economy, everyone will be looking at that indicator in the next few months. So look up, make it really simple. So look up PMI heat map, Business Insider, and look at what you guys have got on it, and, and you should find that. that I, I've got to go create a page. Yeah, so I know. I'm just showing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've got about six hours. So, yeah, but yeah, but, 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 but uh, to, to look at that. Where it was a year ago, it was super green. Now it's looking a little bit uh, amber. Okay, look, we've got to wrap it up. Uh, can you please thank our panel? Um, that was a fascinating discussion. That was our Indicator Insider panel, uh, which was the penultimate panel. And then for the last one, um, at our live event in Sydney on November 27th, uh, we had six people on the panel to talk about everything that was going to happen in Australia over the next six months. And uh, it was quite a, a discussion, Dave, wasn't it? Proverbial Royal Rumble. Uh, and so much so that I didn't have to go and say anything because the conversation just flowed beautifully. And uh, started off with a, a joke and a bit of folly between uh, Stephen Kakoulis and, uh, and Bill Evans and Westpac. So uh, it was a great and very entertaining chat. It just brought all the uh, most of the things we discussed in the, uh, the, the previous panels together in one, uh, one giant hula. That's right. So I'm going to just let you go straight into it. Uh, it covers everything. It covers markets, covers the Fed, uh, covers house prices, China. 
um, who covers everything. Um, so the guests on there are Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ, Bill Evans, Chief Economist, Westpac, Con Michalakis, who uh, is Chief Investment Officer at uh, Statewide Super in South Australia, Stephen Kukulis, Managing Director at uh, Market uh, Economics, Pete Wargent, uh, buyer's agent and founder of Alan Wargent uh, Property, and then Laura Fitzsimmons, who is Executive Director of Macro Sales uh, at JP Morgan uh, here in Sydney. Over to the show. All right, ding, ding, ding. Uh, I am going to start. Um, look, uh, every week on the show, we, we talk um, to the different analysts and economists about um, about a whole range of things, um, but we always ask for their outlook on, on the, the Australian economy and, and where things are going, um, and, and also in particularly the policy challenges, uh, not just uh, in terms of monetary policy, but also um, fiscal policy and industry policy as well. Um, and like particularly if you look at what's happened this year, um, uh, this problem with policy consensus uh, seems to continue to just get bigger. Um, and uh, the instability of this week, um, I think, is just you know part of a continuing story with these challenges. So, to pick some of this apart, um, and I think have a look into next year, uh, we have this excellent panel um, here, and I hope there'll be a bit of uh, to and fro uh, amongst you all. Uh, but Bill, um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I realise it's late on Tuesday evening, and, um, but um, thanks for giving us the time. Uh, a few months ago. You made what is a big decision um, to push out the timing of uh, uh, Westpac's um, expectations for the next RBA uh, rate increase. Can you talk me through the process of how you arrived at that decision um, and, uh, and your rationale for it? Uh, thanks, Paul, and thanks for keeping an old bloke up late at night. You know, <laughs> you're missing midsummer murders. I think that's all. <laughs> it's already started. No, 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 no. <laughs> The antique show. The antique show. Uh, Paul, look, we just we just have a standard process where, around the middle of a calendar year, we will um, give a for we will update our forecast for two years out. So, around uh, it was about August this year we updated our forecast for 2019-2020, um, and so we never really had a rate hike in 2020. Uh, it's just that we only had forecasts out to 18 and 19. Uh, and when I assessed the issue around 2020, to me it still looked, the global economy was going to be slowing down, the, the Fed was going to be on hold, the US economy was going to be slowing down. There was clearly going to be a major contraction from growth on, um, from housing construction. Uh, the house price cycle, we think, was still going to be in decline in 2020. So I really didn't think there was a strong case to go out there and beat the bushes and say that we thought they'd raise rates in 2020. So we extended it another year. Now, last year, uh, it was a big call when we called no, no hike in 19, because the market had three hikes priced in by the end of 19, and all the other majors had hikes in 18. So that was a big call. This year, it's not such a big call, because I think the market's only got about one hike by the end of 2020. So. It's not as much stress as, um, as we had in the past, but um, you yeah. give, give us a break for a while and do without a bit of stress. And exactly. One of the things you, you pointed out um, before, we were just chatting before, and you were saying that, uh, you know, um, back was it was the early 90s or the, the 80s, you had high inflation and rates went from 19 to 10 and back up to something like 17. Um, you know, and I could actually feel my blood pressure increasing. Yeah, I had a lot. Uh, I, I was managing trading businesses then, and I had a few traders that... Uh, 
lost a bit of money at that time. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't act, they didn't actually understand that funding was significant. So they'd buy a five-year bond and say, look, I made five basis points on that. Yeah, but you're funding it at, it's, it's, it's an 8% bond and you're funding it at 21. <laughs> you don't make money, son. <laughs> um, so the times have changed a lot since so, then. So those things were, were interesting then. This is going to be a fairly dull period for rates. Um, you know, maybe one, one increase um, uh, in a couple of years' time, one small 25 basis point, a couple of years' time. What is interesting to you at the moment about the domestic economy? Oh, look, I, I think if we're talking markets, uh, the thing that stands out is that the timing of the Fed when the Fed goes on hold, that's all that counts. Uh, and I saw some good analysis on that today. My view is that, uh, that we know the housing market in the US has already turned down, but that's not enough to get the Fed to go on hold. They're focused on the labour market. So I think that the labour market's still got a whole lot of momentum. And while consumer spending will soften, the, the durables, interest rate sensitive housing will soften, I don't think the Fed will actually feel they can go on hold until they've seen employment growth slow to around 1%. And that's what I'm expecting uh, in that December quarter. But to me, that'll determine the turning point in the bond market. It'll determine the turning point in the, um, in the currency markets. So that's the big question. I'm not sure whether Australia is that interesting at the moment. Um, uh, most people are now walking away from the idea of rates going up next year. Uh, 2020 is a long way off. It's, it's really that, that Fed cycle, and that's the thing that keeps us awake at night. So broadly to the panel, um, jump on anybody who wants to take this, but um, this rising rate environment globally, um, the, how that feeds down into Australia, we have seen out of cycle uh, uh, increases on some mortgage products um, uh, this year. Um, there's talk now about the, you know, the declining wealth effect as a result of this. So um, Stephen, might, I might just, throw this straight at you. Um, yep. You are, I think, the only economist in the surveys calling for a cut. I think so. And look, one of the things, I, I, um, it's interesting when you sort of walk along um, Pitt Street Mall, there's a juggler with his um, ten pins juggling them, and he drops them every now and then. But people sort of clap, he picks them up and does again. It's a bit like the Reserve Bank. They have a target for inflation of two to three, they keep missing it, and the market's still, oh, well done, RBA, you're doing a great job. Um, so, to me, the problem for the RBA and the call for an interest rate cut is because of possibly ongoing missing of the inflation target, even on their own measures. And I know they've sort of got a, a, a trajectory that in 2020 they get to a two-point-something, but it's still only two or two and a quarter at this stage <clears throat> on, their, on their current forecast. And that's with GDP at three and a half or certainly 3% plus for that whole, whole time horizon. Now, the, the reason for my rate cut calls is, is an inflation call, but it's been sort of confirmed in my view anyway about the wealth effect from the fall in house prices and just more recently in the stock market. Now, whether they continue or not, we've sort of had a partial discussion on that. I've spent a lot of time looking at research globally on the link between household wealth and a change in household consumption growth. And I'm yet to find any research, a bit like sort of global warming research, I've yet to find any research that, that shows that falling wealth is correlated with an acceleration in household consumption growth. In fact, all of it's either sort of neutral or that there is lower household consumption growth on the basis of that. So based on, so it's a long answer, apologies, but the 
if we do know that house prices even start to consolidate early in the new year and they drop the 15% only, not the 20, they consolidate and probably don't do much as the nasty negative gearing rules come into play and all these other things happen, then the wealth effect is still quite powerful. And at a time when you've got ongoing low wages growth, uh, at a time when you've got, as Bill touched on, weaker global conditions coming through, you know, Japan and Germany both had negative GDP in the third quarter, I think the Reserve Bank have got to sort of pick up the 10 pins and juggle them and not drop them and get the inflation rate back into the target. Uh, Joe, um, let me bring you, bring you in on this. Uh, so, um, like the retail indicator, obviously big uh, a, a part of the, the, the household consumption picture. Uh, and also you look very carefully, um, uh, you publish regularly on, on the inflation picture. Um, uh, these two are connected um, and, and feed into this picture with household wealth. How are you thinking about that? Sure. So I guess uh, from a consumption point of view, uh, we have got some moderation and consumption growth in our numbers, but we don't have a collapse in consumption growth. So we've got consumption growth slowing to a bit above 2%. And given that pretty much the rest of the economy is going quite well, uh, that's enough for us to hold a sort of 3% GDP number. Uh, I don't disagree about the wealth um, effect. But even if you get a 20% fall in house prices in Sydney and Melbourne, that puts house prices back at their 2015 level. So I think we need to look at the decline relative to the rise that we had. And actually, if we look at the consumer to date, it's consumers have been remarkably resilient, right? So consumer confidence on our measure, and in fact on Bill's measure as well, above its long run average. The indicators that we ask around financial position today and in the future is above its long run average. Um, wage growth, we think, has bottomed. Now, I think the pickup will be very gradual, and global experience tells us that. But combined with uh, ongoing jobs growth, we do see household income picking up just enough that we've got household income growth and consumption growth both growing at about the same rate uh, looking forward. Now, we would highlight um, the domestic consumer and the relationship and interaction with house prices is our number one domestic risk. But our base case, based on our updated house price forecast, is that the consumer can weather the storm because the labour market is so strong. And we talked about this uh, on the earlier panel, the importance of the labour market uh, in the outlook. In terms of, I guess, inflation, just to round out, uh, you know, outright, outright retail price deflation right across the board. As you know, I've got that in my numbers right out until the end of our forecast period. But what I think it is important to remember is it weighs on inflation, but it does also give households a bit of reprieve in terms of purchasing power. Um, so I think that's important too. Um, yeah, certainly been very interesting this year, just a continual sort of relentless drag. Uh, and it just seems to be, uh, appears to be, to me, uh, to be something that's structural baked in um, because of this relentless competition. I mean, if it's not Amazon, it's JD or it's yep. um, uh, other huge um, uh, companies coming in with enormous balance sheets that can just yep. put this massive runway down in front of their uh, I think local that operation. Structural retail deflation has still got a long way to run, more in some areas than others. You know, we know that it started in clothing and footwear, so potentially it eases in that sector a little bit earlier than uh, things like outdoor camping equipment and the like. But um, there was a Deloitte uh, survey of Australian retailers uh, that looks at the Christmas period ahead, and I found it really interesting. 80% of Australian retailers didn't think that Amazon would materially affect their Christmas sales. But 60% of them have already got planned discounts, and another 20% think they may need to discount. And adding to the confusion, 68% think that they'll get margin expansion. So I'm not sure how those moving parts all fit together. 
Um, but I do think that uh, Australian retailers continue to underestimate. You know, we talk about Amazon, but it's much bigger than Amazon, right? So lots of interesting things going on in retail. Uh, Laura, let me bring you uh, in here. How do you see some of these um, these challenges? Um, um, what are the conversations like with, um, with clients at the moment about uh, where Australia is at? Because it certainly there's a lot, anywhere you go, there's a lot of sort of frustration about the uncertainty, whether it's a policy level or, um, you know, house prices are declining, we don't know where the bottom is. Um, uh, what are you seeing? Look, there's a huge amount of negativity right now and I think that's something uh, in sales that I have to be aware of that I, I don't get too sucked into it because you kind of have to give the objective view. So, you know... At JP Morgan, we've been at the dovish end of the spectrum for some time. We haven't had rate hikes in at all in our forecast. And if anything, we relinquished rate cut calls just over a year ago. So, you know, we're definitely coming at things from that side. We look at, you know, retail margin compression. Um, you know, we look at consumption. We're lower than the RBA. Big difference between us and them. We're looking for 2.7% growth next year. Um, so, look, you know, we're, we're definitely not enthusiastic about things. But I think from a trading side, we kind of look at, you know, and it touches on the theme that we talked about tonight, you know, when things are known and when things are being talked about all the time, well, then they're not going to impact market pricing. And for us, market pricing is what's important. So the risk is obviously that suddenly the employment data continues to perform the way it has done the last couple of months and even better. We have something like what New Zealand had, you know, sub 4% number on unemployment. And then all of a sudden you're thinking, well, hold on, you know, Lowe's been telling you the next move is up. So maybe we should listen at some point. And I'm not saying that anyone's going to change the house call, but I think in markets we're aware that the, the market is underpricing what the RBA could do. And clearly, as Bill mentioned, we've priced more before from the RBA. But people are so worried about housing. They're so worried about potentially politics. I think that's more an offshore thing. I think locally people aren't actually as worried about politics as they are offshore. But I think they're kind of things that are clouding people's vision um, away from the economic data. So I think for me, that's where actually there's potentially an opportunity. And when I look at, you know, as we go into next year and I think about, you know, one thing we looked at, the Bank of Israel hiked. And they have actually quite a decent correlation with the Antipodean central banks. These little things we kind of just watch and keep an eye on because all of a sudden that could be the big surprise for next year. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, and I think, you know, particularly with the political system that we have, with compulsory voting, etc., it ensures that, you know, um, uh, very aggressive, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to call them extreme, but aggressive um, fiscal policies, tax policies, etc., are hard to get up. I mean, um, the parties in the middle may not have that articulate or visionary a policy, um, uh, but it's the thing that's going to um, uh, uh, be in place um, uh, by the t you know but as you go through the election cycle. Um, Con, I want to bring you in here. Um, uh, you are very opinionated on uh, a lot of this stuff. Um, so, uh, uh, so cut loose, man. Um, what do you think the problems are? What do you think the problems Shit. are for Australia? All right, I'm going to walk All right. so I'm going to be on the opposite side of Kirk. If, if, honestly, if markets have fallen 10%, whether it's property and equities, and we need a rate cut with record household debt, then this country is really stuffed, right? I mean, I mean, if we're not that resilient to falls in asset prices, then I really worry about the future of this country. Because, you know, markets overshoot. And I lived in the US for a while, I lived in the UK, and you know, how did the Greenspan put and all of that work out? There was runaway credit growth, then they, they, they sort of hiked pretty quickly, and then you know, there was loose lending, there was a shadow banking system. Private debt's a big issue. Uh, 
I'd be interested in the economist on the panel. One thing, market people worry about credit growth and asset pricing. E economics feels like it's catching up to that. You know, the mainstream is now looking at that. I, I worry if you're going to have falling property prices and you need to cut rates because property prices have fallen 10 or 15% with record household debt, who knows what happens to China, then the Aussie's going to have a five handle and we're going to have something. I, I actually joined, when I first joined this industry on the asset management side, well, actually on the trading side, it was just after the recession. Westpac had a failed rights issue. It collapsed. I think Kerry Packer went in and bought a lot of the company. It was Chainsaw, uh, Chainsaw Dunlap, what a character he was. And we had a major banking crisis. The uh, life insurance officers had high capital guaranteed rates. You know, finance has this thing of can have negative feedback loops. Just rate cuts worry me on that sense. I it's took offence to that, Con. Um, <laughs> Kerry, <laughs> Kerry Packer wanted to get rid of the economics department. Did he? <laughs> I couldn't understand it. <laughs> He's a smart man, isn't he? <laughs> so, so I, I just. Just, there's a lot of private debt out there because of the low rates, because of financial repression. How resilient are we? And then if you ask the young ones in this audience, I think they they love the idea of falling property prices because maybe it falls, the market clears, they can re-enter the market, right? Um, Pete, um, you look at this. Uh, obviously, you know your business is in is around <coughs> property prices, or is in you know buying and selling property. But but you're the, you publish on a whole bunch of different indicators, and I think it's. You know, um, I think anybody who follows it would um, uh, uh, would agree that the breadth of uh, of data that you follow uh, is really interesting. So, what's your take on the overall? Like, how would you sum up your view on on the overall macro picture for yeah, Australia? Well, it's interesting you say a, um, a boring period for interest rates because, in, in one sense, yes, for the cash rate, you know, long period of no change. But if you look at what's happened since APRA stepped in, we've had enormous changes in the mortgage market. So we've gone from at the peak of interest only lending, forty percent of the entire mortgage book um, and that that is really uh, at the time a lot of people said oh you know APRA is going to come in with a lettuce leaf and they've absolutely smashed it you know down to um, the flow of new mortgages is now very low um, but the stock of outstanding interest only debt is now down to about 27 percent and by the end of the year maybe 25 percent so really uh, taken the froth off that so there's a few different implications um, because Going back to your interest rates point, we have now have a mortgage rate differential. So uh, interest-only debt and um, some investor loans are on higher mortgage rates than a lot of the principal and interest debt. Um, so a lot of people have switched voluntarily. Um, so what the Reserve Bank has <coughs> pointed out from a consumption perspective is that, um, well, yes, there's more principal being paid down, but there's also been a drop in unscheduled repayments as well. So net-net, maybe not that much change, but um, this is going back to Con's point on record private debt. Um, we've had a lot of use of mortgage buffers and offset accounts. I think that's now changing, so people actually paying down their debt. Um, now, the cliff has already been and gone, uh, but that you know, the repayments is an ongoing thing and it's got the potential to keep sucking energy out of the market and then that has the knock-on impact. I just want to take the point with uh, Con again, uh, if I may. The, the rate cut calls not to protect the housing market as such. In fact, if it was me, I'd maintain a fairly tight rein on the macro pru issues. I'd keep them pretty, pretty tight. It's to ensure that the 
non-housing and non-household consumption sides of the economy pick up. Yeah, we're getting CapEx numbers tomorrow or the next day, whenever they are, and they've actually been really disappointing. Yeah. We haven't had a particularly robust rebound in CapEx, and not just in the mining sector. Non-mining's picked up a bit, but not very much, so I'm amused that maybe a rate cut would help the the uh, capex side of the economy, and but, but if it's um, like if they're not if, if there's not um, capex investment at uh, 1.5, why would 1.25 make a difference? It's at the margin. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, rate interest rates do move in a sense. It's just to try to stimulate that part of the economy, and linked to that, of course, my hunch is that the Aussie dollar would fall uh, if there was the move to dovish. You said a five handle con. Not quite sure whether it would go to fifty cents. Well, in, in, a, in a banking crisis. In a crisis, yeah, well, yeah, it maybe yeah. would, but certainly would get into the sixties, I'd reckon, with a rate cut scenario. We're sort of close, only a couple of cents away now, uh, and that export sector would get it, would get the boost. So, in a sense, it'd be a, it'd be a policy adjustment designed to ensure that the capex net export contribution to GDP gets a shot in the arm, even allowing for the household debt levels to continue to stabilise, to decline a little bit, and, and let the housing market weaken. Yeah, Bill, I might just um, ask. Sorry, just one, one second. There's one question here, um, which is that the ability of Australia to withstand these shocks very connected, obviously, to, I mean, what does it take to, to really knock Australia sideways? Um, because um, if something bad does happen here, we get this instant sort of fall in, in, in the currency, which reignites the tourism sector, um, tourism sector education, etc. Um, what, in your view, would be the kind of thing that would take domestically um, to really cause um, some difficulties, either domestically or globally, if, if it needs to be around the Fed? Oh, look, I think it's pretty hard to envisage something like that. Uh, your point about the Aussie dollar is important. It's been a great shock absorber for Australia. You know, high population growth in the Aussie dollar are the reasons why we've avoided a recession for 30 years or 28 years or something. Look, the, the one, one area that is always a concern for Australia is their ability to fund the deficit offshore. And that relies upon the confidence of international investors to lend money to the banks. Uh, and so if we got to a situation where the travails in the housing market were such that international investors started to say, oh, I told you so, we knew this was going to happen, that would become a problem. But then, of course, the Reserve Bank would get involved and um, they could do QE, the Aussie dollar would fall. Um, the other thing you look at is for a policy mistake. Uh, I, I, it's hard to see a policy mistake. I don't think the RBA is going to go on some sort of aggressive rate hike binge. That would be a policy mistake. Uh, fiscal policy is, is in pretty good shape. Um, so I think it would be that international funding issue and, of course, once again, some impact on Australia from sentiment around China. Just briefly, this argument, you talked about um, the scenario where, where, where the RBA decides to start piling on rate hikes, even if it's just for a buffer, right? So put some shots back in the locker. Uh, what do you think of that, um, uh, that thesis? That they would raise rates? Do, do they need to raise rates to put oh, a buffer look, in? Phil, those very, they're all very clear on that, that raising rates to create a, you know, a shocker, to create a, a, an ability to cut rates when necessary. His argument is, which is the right argument, why would I raise rates? It's just going to be bad for the economy. They've got other ways of dealing uh, through QE if they need to. So I, that, I think that argument has been well and truly uh, discredited. The other one that we need to understand is that uh, Phil Lowe 
spoke offshore some months ago where he said that a period of low inflation for Australia is nothing like the uh, risk that uh, further rises in household debt would be. So unlike, unlike Glenn Stevens, when he got a low inflation number in April 16 and immediately cut rates, even though he was get, becoming successful in slowing household credit, but felt his obligation to be an inflation fighter first, Phil has, has, is more patient. Just keep forecasting that you'll get there at some point. Well, it's five years later, and we're still we still haven't even got to two percent. <laughs> yeah. And the problem, the and it doesn't feel like it's going to get there. The theoretical problem for that is that it starts to feed into in inflationary expectations, which is a concept that policymakers and economists love but can't measure. But one way that inflationary expectations will remain low is if every year people read that inflation's less than two percent. So that's the risk that they're running. Yeah, and it creates this um, issue, which is, you know, um, I saw it put this week, you know, that, uh, you know, politicians are needing to understand that when people are struggling to pay their bills and they definitely don't feel like they're getting ahead, so GDP per capita um, is starting to pull back uh, a little bit in Australia. One of the things that I always loved about the Australian economy was its astonishing performance relative to other countries in terms of GDP per capita. Um, uh, but it's starting to, to pull back. And I think, um, you know, you're starting to see some of the consequences of that, right? Um, so um, uh, my favorite one is private health insurance. Um, so uh, APRA this week, or I think it was the ACCC, um, uh, registrations for private health insurance are down 1%. Uh, when the population is growing at a little bit more than that level. So we are shedding people off one of these things which is a buffer for their lifestyle. Um, uh, Joe, uh, how else do you think about this? Can I um, just bring you in to get maybe a bit more uh, uh, perspective on how you see some of, the, some of the risks and also some of the opportunities, like what keeps um, uh, Australia in a secure uh, position, um, you know, sure. not, to, um, not to bear it up too much? Yeah, so look, I tend to agree with Bill. I think it's pretty hard to paint a domestic issue that really derails the economy, that really pushes the economy into recession. Um, now, obviously, you can paint that kind of crisis scenario in the housing market, which we did in the earlier panel, but you know that doesn't seem likely in, and not really in most mainstream forecasts. I, I guess when I think about it, and perhaps uh, relative to Stephen's views around the RBA, um, most forecasters have a currency that's going to depreciate a bit more already, even with steady policy. So we're looking for the currency to be a positive for the economy. Uh, we've also got an incredibly uh, strong contribution from the public sector. And of course, it's not just infrastructure, it's public consumption as well. Now, some of that's the rollout of the NDIS, but actually it's a bit more than that. And now we've got a fiscal uh, position that's a lot stronger than it was. And of course, an election coming. So upside risk that we could see stronger than expected uh, public spending and numbers. And a budget, Joe, in April 2. And a budget in April that's 2, which is... great theatre. <laughs> which is uh, indeed... The and, day uh, after April Fool's Day, yeah. <laughs> Here yeah, are I hadn't my thought forecasts. About that. Uh, so, so that you know, I, I think it's easy to focus on the downside risk in the economy, and um, you know, sentiments poor in the housing market. And everywhere I go, and I'm sure everyone on this panel is the same. Everyone is talking about housing endlessly. But actually, the economy grew at four percent annualised in the first half of the year. We've got three percent next year. Whether it's three or two and three quarters, or the three and a half that the RBA has, it's a pretty solid kind of outlook. I actually think with um, 
business investment. We don't need a rate cut because actually business profitability is really high. Survey business conditions are really high. Capacity utilization is really high. So I think that element's quite good. I think we could likely to see a lower Aussie dollar. Uh, we've got 67 cents in our forecast at the margin helps a bit. Um, and some upside risk from, from the public side. I mean, to the point about expectations, business profitability is really high, but where's the wages growth, right? So business profitability is, you know, it's coming from somewhere. Um, yep. And it's coming from, part of it is from wage strength. Yeah, well, I think we are starting to see wages pick up. I mean, look, there's a variety of measures. Uh, we at ANZ particularly are increasingly looking at the wage price index, including bonuses. We have this theory that post-GFC firms are trying to keep more flexibility in their wage bill. So more firms are using bonuses than they did previously. Even the WPI, if you kind of squint and look to two decimal places, and we've, we've talked about this, you can sort of see some acceleration. It's going to be gradual. The US experience tells us it's going to be gradual. But it is picking up, and we do see continued jobs growth. Not at the pace we've had in the last two years, but enough to bring the unemployment rate down a bit more. Okay, so get ever so tiny, infinitesimally small uh, <laughs> amount excited about uh, pay reviews next year. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's sort of, um, it comes back to, to Laura's point that you can get really embroiled in the sentiment. Um, yeah. Now, as macroeconomists, we try to do it less than, than perhaps strategists, but um, you can, and I think around the housing market, I mean, we've just downgraded our forecast, but I am cognizant of not getting too negative at, at the low. Um, and there are a few upside surprises out there. So okay. Joe, I've, I've cut, cut that wage price index by leaving out bankers and the bonus effects even higher. <laughs> Quite right. I wouldn't, could agree more. Um, okay. I'm going to go to questions on the floor, but I want to um, throw one at Laura. Um, Australian dollar next year. Um, does anybody want to put their hands up in the meantime for a question? Um, do you want to talk about the Aussie dollar? Yeah, sure. I mean, our forecast is looking for it to move to a low of 68, so a little bit lower than, than what Joe has. Um, that's mainly prefaced on a stronger US dollar continuing, but not against all currencies. It is against the Aussie and the Kiwi heading into next year, um, and also against EM and China and things like that. So it's not a broad-based US dollar strength story, but it certainly is something that feeds into our um, forecast for the Aussie. I'm maybe not as convinced it goes that low, I and mean, that's the house call. I think it, obviously 70 has proved to be pretty robust so far, uh, and generally I think the market got very bared up with the Aussie, you know, around the trade war stuff. And you know, we've seen people take back some of those positions. You know, it is the whipping boy when it, you, you do have a, the China proxy element to it. So you know, we'll see what happens this weekend with the G20, which we're all waiting for so much. Uh, but you know, I tend to think that the Aussie it might be a little bit range bound in the short term. But certainly, I'd say the risks. Given the stronger dollar, we do think the Fed keeps going, does another five more hikes by the end of next year. So that's what you've really got to watch out for um, in terms of our forecast. Sharp intake of breath. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, uh, we do have a question, and remember, it's not Q&A. Uh, I'm not Tony Jones, so uh, make it a question, not a comment. Let's go. Um, I just My question is, do you guys think that this uh, housing downturn is different to the ones in the past, given that in the past um, the RBA always cut rates? and sort of uh, revive the housing market. But this time around, we're close to zero, and there's not as much ammunition for the uh, RBA. I'm gonna, that's a one on uh, leg stop. Good line on leg stop for Pete Wharton. Can I take that as a comment or is that a Q&A? Um, look, yeah, well, I think uh, we, we had this actually on the Devils and Details podcast um, 18 months, a couple of years ago. But there was a change of personnel. In fact, Bill already mentioned this. There's, there's no real appetite now to see clearly rates go lower than they already have. You know, that would be, you know, the, you know, the, the last resort, I suppose. So, um, you know, I think today the regulators are probably pretty happy. They've done 
you know, they don't target house prices. So, um, you know, it's really financial stability. That's what APRA's, um, you know, role has been in this, is to clear away some of the, the excesses in mortgage lending. Um, I don't think, um, yeah, so in that sense, it is different, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, every cycle is different. Um, What's the saying that the five most da dangerous words in... <laughs> yeah. And I think those house price falls in different cycles. I'd have to go back and triple check. But uh, most of the falls in house prices in prior cycles that even were a bit more modest than, than this one all followed rate hikes. This one we've had, haven't had rate hikes since November 2010, if I'm not mistaken. This is actually caused by something else. So that doesn't make it different but for the moment. You know, it's different oh, times, different. you know. It's, it's yeah, I mean, entirely different. I see a lot yeah. of this analysis online, you know, comparing to the 1880s downturn and stuff. It's like, <laughs> what, I just yeah. don't see, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we've had, you know, we've had inflation targeting since, what, 1993. Yeah. It is different, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, we talk about, you know, the recessions in, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, when, you know, house prices in real terms may have been falling by 5%, but actually in nominal terms were up, you know, it's different times. Okay, we've got one more time for one more quick question. Um, Gold was Bitcoin. Um, question to the $8 billion man on the end there. How do you teach your clients to love volatility instead of being absolutely petrified by it? Because it it's, it's interesting, the panel tonight, you know, all these panels are basically sort of, oh, we're hoping we're sort of grinding along and rates aren't going to move much and there's no volatility. And yet we know the best clearing mechanism of any market is volatility and a complete clean-out. Thanks. Come. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Jeez. I think I just met him for the first time earlier and I thought he was a good bloke. Um, um, <laughs> no, you can't. You can't... You can't teach, volatility happens, um, and unfortunately, weak money or impatient money will will come out of the system. I, I work at a super fund, and so you've got to be long-term. You know, those between 20 and 50s, you know, they should be able to pick up a cycle. We had a pretty bad one 10 years ago in the GFC, and the system got close but it got through it and we got very close, right? I mean, the, the, I could tell you as one, one running a super fund, it, was, it got pretty hairy at one stage, but... Um, well, but a lot of people left the system at the bottom and, and they never got back and they never got out. And unfortunately, you even saw it in October. Uh, the good thing about working for a smallish fund, I take a couple of calls, I actually go see members. It just reminds me what my day job is. And it's interesting seeing it and watching people react. There are people I know who said, no, I'm fine, Con. I can handle the volatility. It drops 3% and they can't handle it. There are others that come out of the system. You can now switch online. So there's going to be an electronic run on the system if it happens, whether it's banking, whether it's investments, whether it's superannuation. You just get an app and switch. It's going to... So I don't know how resilient that is. Hopefully we are, but... You'd say long-term, but whether that happens, you don't know. But we've had a few cycles. Most of us in this room have lived through a few cycles, and you get through it. Okay, just because of the time, I am going to wrap it up. I want to do a couple of things uh, quickly. I need to say a few thank yous. Thank yous. Um, first of all, to our sponsor, uh, OFX. 
like who I said earlier, uh, they've been uh, great to work with. Um, really interesting Australian company. We're really proud to have uh, worked with them uh, on putting this together tonight. And uh, I really hope everybody's enjoyed themselves. Um, and um, the other person that, uh, as you know, uh, with all of these things, uh, there's always one person who, who actually makes it all happen, and that person is Mia standing over there. So well done, Mia. Um, and uh, and just uh, one one last uh, um, uh, thank you as well. Obviously, I need to thank the Ivy. Um, you guys have been awesome to work with. It's made it really easily, really easy. But our guests make the show. Um, uh, they uh, do. Um, they're. They're very generous with the time. The podcast is sometimes runs to an hour, um, and they'll sit there and talk about um, and share their insights and uh, and talk about all sorts of things that we throw at them. Uh, and uh, we've been delighted to um, uh, to build an audience for it, um, uh, and that has been through the contribution of the guests, um, all of them who've been on the show except Bill. And I'm going to pin you down and get you say we've got to get you on at some stage <laughs> next year. <laughs> my, uh, my right. Um, okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Good evening. We're going to have, go and have a drink. Thanks for listening. Uh, we hope that you uh, enjoyed uh, listening back to our panel event. Uh, we certainly had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and uh, we managed to fill the room. So uh, it was fun, Dave. Um, and I think we'd uh, like the opportunity, I think, to do it, maybe think about doing this again next year. I think so. Maybe more than once a year. You know, I saw a request this morning to go and uh, bring it down to Melbourne. So who knows what the future holds. But uh, where, there's, uh, where there's demand for us to go and come and uh, have a chat to, uh, to various market types and for people seeking information, we'll, uh, we'll be there. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter individually. That's myself, Paul Colgan, and David Scott uh, from Business Insider. Um, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>